This recording has been produced by Christ Church Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Our worship continues with the public reading and study of the Word of God. The first reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are faint-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed of the Lord shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading this morning from James chapter 5, page 1186 in your church Bibles. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Seboeth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, 
take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel portion for the third Sunday in Advent is Matthew chapter 11. We will honor an ancient Christian tradition. Please stand as we hear the good news in the words of Jesus the Messiah. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear such soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, today we're hearing this story about your son and John the Baptist. We pray that uh, this will not be some past abstract event, but Lord, we ask that uh, this incident will speak to us today as it spoke to people 2,000 years ago. We pray that uh, you will give us real Torah from this passage, guidance and direction and instruction. Pray that these words will encourage us. We pray that these words will challenge us. We pray that these words will um, enable us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the truth. We are doing the truth, and we ask this for the sake of your Son. In the name of Jesus, amen. <coughs> well, I'd like to just remind you, if some of you haven't thought about it already, but uh, there are only 10 praying days left till Christmas. Maybe you thought I was going to say 10 shopping days. Yes, there's only 10 days left to be generous. There's only 10 days of repentance left. Advent was always to be a time. Always to be a time in which we prepared for the coming of the Lord. The second coming uh, and uh, to renew our commitment to um, his first coming. and The message that, uh, the teaching that he brings so we've said in the last several weeks, unfortunately, um, the holiday has become profane by uh, 
uh, secularization and, gr and gross commercialization doesn't make Advent or Christmas wrong. It simply makes the way that uh, celebrated uh, makes it something to be unfortunate uh, in our day and age. But again, just to remind all of us that the purpose of Advent is a season of preparation. It is not a season for parties. Uh, it's not a season of uh, going, uh, maxing out your credit card. But instead, uh, it's one really of spiritual reflection. And I think the gospel passage, I hope the gospel passage drives us towards that uh, conclusion. Because the passage that we have is about uh, John the Baptist. And John always gets two Sundays in Advent, which is good. Of course, you may know that John has two feast days in the church calendar. Maybe three uh, or two and a half if we consider um, the uh, baptism of Jesus. You know, John is an important but enigmatic character. We're not quite sure what to think of him. We don't, we don't have so many uh, details about him. He's certainly central and important uh, in the ministry of Jesus and in the, uh, the New Testament uh, story. Uh, I think many of us are a little confused. We mentioned this last week and maybe even a few weeks previously, but it's worth uh, mentioning again. I mean, what is John the Baptist doing? And uh, we all can uh, repeat the words as if it's a cliche or a formula. John the Baptist, he is preparing the way for the Messiah. That's a wonderful answer. But the question is, how is he preparing the way for the Messiah? <clears throat> And he's doing it in a very biblical way. And that biblical way is that he, John, in that biblical understanding, John understands the very, very deep and even essential connection that uh, we read about uh, in the Old Testament that uh, comes, you might say, to fruition uh, in Jewish thinking about the time of Jesus, that redemption is closely tied Okay, redemption is connected to repentance. There is no uh, redemption of Israel, basically, uh, in the thinking of many Jewish Bible commentators, unless Israel repents. And so John is preaching repentance. And this repentance is not uh, only something personal about my sins or your sins or the sins of individuals. It's also... He's telling the nation that uh, through your repentance, this is the way that we prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And it's our way of telling God, hey, look at us. We are crying out for mercy. We're crying out for deliverance. Uh, look upon our repentance and come and save us. And I think that's, of course, what, why Jesus goes out and has the baptism uh, of John, not because Jesus has personal sin, uh, but that uh, Jesus also, along with many uh, many members, many uh, people in, uh, in Israel of that time, okay, is looking forward to God's deliverance. Is looking forward to this this time of uh, this time of redemption. So John isn't sending an Evite. John isn't sending a message saying the Messiah is coming, you know, let me know, yes, no, maybe. Okay, John is, the message of John, which is very essential, 
uh, and of course becomes the message of Jesus, is a message of repentance. And this repentance um, is not, doesn't, by the way, stop with John. It continues with Jesus, does it not? Because the opening words uh, from the mouth of Jesus, from his lips, the lips of the Messiah himself, is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning God is at work uh, here and now. God is doing something. But in order to participate in this, there need all of us uh, need, to, need to repent. And of course, as we've mentioned before, but I think again, it's worth mentioning again, is that when Jesus says repent, it's not a one-time call for change, but it is a, a lifestyle, really. Because in the Greek, it's repent and keep on and keep on repenting. And so John comes with this message. He's calling upon Israel to repent. Uh, he's calling upon Israel to show um, a sign of that repentance uh, by going into the, uh, the waters of uh, baptism. And John, of course, is uh, reminding everyone that uh, this messianic event, this redemption is going to be understood according to the way he thinks and many others in Israel. It's going to be understood uh, in a very simple binary way. There's either going to be a destruction for the wicked, the wicked are going to be burnt up, or the righteous, if you're righteous, will receive the Holy Spirit. This is the basic message of John. And uh, along comes Jesus, and Jesus um, challenges John's understanding. John himself, the question is, does John get it right? John recognizes Jesus. And by the way, this is something that applies universally not just to John the Baptist. John understands, like so many people of his day and our day, that Jesus is an incredible religious figure, that he's influenced, uh, you know, the, not only Western civilization, but he's influenced world history in a way that virtually no one else has. Yes. But this John, uh, maybe for that matter, do we understand the agenda? Do we understand not only who Jesus is, but why he comes and what he expects us to do? And that's where it gets a little murky. And I'd like to read through this uh, and see if it applies to us uh, in the day and age uh, in which we live. This is a very important story, and it's certainly in the gospel uh, for the simple reason, I believe, that the early church and the early followers of Jesus were confused. Who is John and who is Jesus? Because if you remember, John was quite popular. The, the message of John spread all over the Jewish world. And recently in Acts 18 and 19, uh, when we did the, Bible, the Acts Bible study, there was a um, uh, mention of the baptism of uh, of, uh, of John, but uh, people did not know, did not necessarily, or did not seem to know uh, of Jesus. John had a huge movement. 
throughout the Jewish world. And the Jesus movement started off a lot smaller, okay? Of course, it continued to, uh, continued to grow and it continued to expand, but uh, it was not as, one time it was not as big or as popular uh, as John the Baptist. So the early believers are asking, maybe the, even the early disciples of Jesus, hey, what's the relationship? What's the connection? How do we understand uh, all of these things? And we have Matthew 11 for us. Matthew 11, and let's, let's pick through it uh, and then see what we learn from this. It said, when John heard uh, in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him. By the way, I'd like just to notice this. Where are the disciples of John the Baptist when he's in prison? They're with John somehow. Where are the disciples of Jesus when he's imprisoned and going to be crucified? His disciples have run away. The disciples of Jesus abandoned him and betrayed him and they were too fearful to stand with him in his hour of need. That was breaking the number one rule of what uh, of the teacher-student relationship that, uh, uh, in those times. So he sent his disciples and he says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So is John having exactly a moment of doubt, as some people say? I would say yes, but I would say it's a little more uh, complicated than that. Because John isn't just asking, are you the coming one? He's asking, are you the coming one according to my theology? Are you the one who's coming according to the way I've been preaching? Because I've been preaching with great assurance uh, and great confidence that there's going to be fire and there's going to be judgment. Now, how do we know? Well, first of all, we know the words of John the Baptist recorded for us uh, in at least two, even three of the Gospels. Uh, four of the, all four Gospels actually um, point, uh, mention uh, the role of John. But what's important here is to understand the language. And a lot of times that, and when you talk about Jewish Bible commentary or Jewish Bible debate, that language becomes very important. And the details of the language become important. You might say the divine is in the details, not the devil, but the divine. So every time this phrase, or most times this phrase, coming one or coming is used in scripture, it is used in connection with some kind of judgment, some kind of fire. God's angry with, uh, with Israel. And I'd just like to give you a few verses because John and Jesus are going to have a very typical Jewish Bible discussion. And that Jewish Bible discussion doesn't quite uh, happen along the same lines that, um, uh, as it does in the church, for example, or we do it. So today, if we were to argue about verses, someone sits down and we talk about free will versus um, uh, predestination, we would say yes, but if you open to Joel chapter three, you would find this passage and many of us would be 
scratching her head saying, yeah, what's in Joel chapter 3? Let me find it. I'm not sure I read this for quite a few years. And some people might say yes, but Romans 2. And yes, let's, let's look, up, look up Romans 2. We do this because we're biblically illiterate on the whole. The knowledge of the Bible and the church is very poor, sadly. And this is maybe the source of some of many of our problems. We don't know the scripture. We don't think biblically. Okay. We don't have a culture of Bible that surrounds us. Yes, we maybe read devotionals. Hopefully some of us go to a Bible study once in a while. We don't know the scriptures. In Jesus' day, people knew this stuff. They, had, um, they didn't have little portable Bibles to carry around. They had downloaded it into their heads. And they knew the text, and they could recite large chunks uh, of the Bible. They would sing the Bible and pray the Bible in synagogue, uh, as well as just having it memorized. Uh, they would debate, and they would debate the scripture not by talking about chapter and verse, which didn't exist in that day. There was no chapter and no verse. They would simply throw out a phrase and people would know where that would come from. And you could walk around and talk in an intelligent way, only hinting at a verse. Like Jesus would say, he walks through Jericho, he meets Zacchaeus, people criticize him, probably is saying, that guy should be roasted alive. He's a wicked sinner do the John the Baptist on him. And Jesus says, I, did, I have come, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And that little phrase which describes what Jesus does connects to Daniel 7, and it connects to Ezekiel. And if you want to know what Jesus is talking about, go back and read around Daniel 7, and read what, read what today we call Ezekiel 34 you'll get an idea of who Jesus is. But he doesn't go into some long theological debate. Yes, he doesn't. He, they're just quoting scripture. They're throwing out phrases. So John's saying, Jesus, are you the coming one? And what does, he ref what does he refer to? He refers to this. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah 9. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on the colt of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim I will, and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. So this coming one who comes on a colt, who comes humble, is going to put an end to war. He's going to maybe wage war in order to put an end to war. And then you have all these passages from Malachi. Yes, it says, and all you, I won't even read them all, but I think in just a moment you'll get an idea. It says, um, see, um, in Malachi 3, 1, I send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Okay, but then verse 2 of Malachi 3. Who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit and uh, 
as a refiner and purifier of silver. Okay? Verse 5, so I will come near to you for judgment. You hear this? Come, judgment. Verse chapter 4, again, I'm not going to read them all. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. The day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. Okay? Uh, And every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming, will set them on fire. Okay? Verse 5. Um, See, I send my prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children um, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So what is, in a Jewish way, not very Christian, what is John saying? John is saying, come on, Jesus, Where's the program? Where's the judgment? Where is this fire that's supposed to come? And Jesus says to John, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want to tell you what my agenda is. And my agenda, Jesus takes, uh, again, Jesus is going to take verses or phrases from a verse. And he's going to uh, Tell us, yes, what, who he is. From Psalm 35, sorry, from Isaiah 35. Okay, I'm opening the eyes of the blind. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue will shout, mute tongue will shout for joy. Or Psalm, sorry, Isaiah 61. I have come to preach good news to the desperate. I have come, and Jesus says, this is my agenda. Now, I don't think for one minute that Jesus somehow stopped believing in a final judgment. He does believe in a judgment to come. And he believes that he himself will be the judge. But he's telling John, John, that's not the time. This is not the time for the fire. This is not the time for the last judgment, the judgment, the ultimate judgment of the wicked and the blessing of the righteous. John, that has to wait because now people need a chance to repent and God himself through me and through the spirit is doing this work of healing uh, and restoration um, and bringing redemption to the lives of people. This is all happening, Jesus understands. uh, All this is the understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And so John, doesn't get that. Now there's no, we need to be a little bit careful because the family of Jesus doesn't understand it. The disciples don't fully understand it. The religious establishment here doesn't understand who Jesus claims to be, who he understands himself and what his agenda is. And by the way, many people today, even so-called Christians who sit in the pew, they also don't understand, fully understand who Jesus is and why he's come. Now, why did John doubt? What was the issues? What was the issues one? I'd like to just mention a few because these are the same issues that cause us either to doubt or to be despondent or sometimes uh, even to um, be disappointed, yes, in the Lord. There's no order in any of those. Um, 
Where, what's the source of John's disappointment? And one, let me say, it's his theology. Yes, it's his theology. Yes, John's theology, John's understanding of the scripture was faulty. Yes, uh, it was based largely on uh, the cultural, you might say, expectations of his day. He um, was like so many people, very desperate. They were looking for justice, yes, looking for some kind of justice uh, to uh, come and to bring uh, a change to the situation that uh, Israel was facing. He also had a false eschatology. He thought the end was near, and maybe because he thought the end was near, he decided to go public with his criticism of uh, Herod Antipas. Um, so, you know, uh, our understanding of the scripture, our understanding of the scripture, our understanding of eschatology uh, is very often, and this is where I think we can get into trouble, is very often influenced, overly influenced by the culture in which we live. Yes, the culture in which we live determines the kind of Jesus we imagine in our mind. And it's very interesting that we always make a Jesus, even if we say we don't, we always create Jesus to be, you might say, largely, largely, okay, comfortable with the culture in which we live. And so if we live in a time when socialism is popular, Jesus becomes a socialist. And if we live in a time when um, uh, being a hard-working conservative, then we will make Jesus into, you know, uh, a conservative. Um, and so we have to be very careful, yeah, on how we, how we construct Jesus. Our politics, yes, and our culture can very easily get in the way. And it happened, I believe, uh, in a way to, to John the Baptist, okay? It happened, his understanding of the Bible, yes, became um, what in the end probably uh, undid him, you might, uh, you might say. Um, we uh, say one quick word. You know, we can sit and criticize people who we think miss the boat. So we can criticize John and all those Jewish people that we read about in the New Testament. And we can think, oh, they got it wrong. And uh, we can sit somehow in judgment and be very harsh. Now they did get it wrong. They didn't understand. Just like today, we have the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is preached by most Prosperity teachers is wrong biblically. But especially if we have uh, some finances or some wealth, it's very easy for us to criticize those people who are desperate and who are poor. It's very easy to criticize therapeutic Christianity. Yet people, many people are desperate emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. We should understand what sometimes is behind this wrong teaching be sympathetic, but apply a gospel 
solution, okay? Not maybe not to tolerate uh, false teaching, but whatever we do, again, we need to be careful that Jesus is, doesn't reflect or look like the spirit of the age. And then I think there's also the personal circumstances. John himself was in prison and he was facing execution. And Herod Antipas, who had arrested him, and by the way, I don't believe Josephus that he was imprisoned in what is today southern Jordan. I actually believe that he was imprisoned in Tiberias. That's what seems to be the, the city of Tiberias. That's what seems to be um, evident in the text. Uh, and so John's personal circumstances, right? He becomes, uh, he's disappointed. Um, and this disappointment causes him to doubt. It causes him to question. And I believe that, by the way, it happens to us as well. Because of our uh, personal circumstances, okay, not just theology, not just our culture gets in the way, but very often uh, there's something that happens to us personally. My sister got cancer and she died at an early age. Why would God allow that to happen? Yes, God didn't save my marriage, you know, when I desperately wanted that marriage to be saved. Yes. Um, so these kinds of, um, uh, these kinds of personal circumstances, um, and by the way, and a large part of this, um, happens to be is that uh, people take offense at other Christians. And because we sometimes take offense at the way other Christians don't live up to the message of Jesus, a huge number of people leave the church and eventually leave the faith. I think one survey uh, suggested in the United States that 60% of people stop going to church because they have been easily offended by somebody else or they have seen some kind of hypocrisy. Yes, so personal circumstances. Also add to this personal morality. A lot of times, unfortunately, our morality, our way of doing things will shape our theology, will shape the way that we live. It should be the other way around. And uh, I remember years ago, one youth leader of a very prominent church he, uh, he said this, he says, when young people come to me and they start to say, well, I'm starting to doubt the Bible. I don't quite know if I believe anymore. His first question is, who are you sleeping with? Yes, who are you sleeping with? And usually there's some sexual issue, but not always. Yes, there's some, there's some issue here. So we also construct a Jesus that's convenient and comfortable for us. Not necessarily the Jesus of the scripture, yes, or the Jesus of church tradition. Now why is church tradition so important? Okay, because church tradition helps us. Yes, it was decided a long time ago by the greatest minds and the greatest hearts that uh, Jesus is divine and uh, that he's a, he's a member of the Trinity. 
and so on and so forth. And when we hear a teaching or when we construct a Jesus that goes against what most Christians have believed for most of the 2,000 years, we can, may, we can be sure that uh, we're straying into areas of trouble. A recent example is universal salvation. Everybody will be saved. This idea is 100 years old. Everybody's somehow going to heaven. It has very, very little um, support in the Reformation or with Augustine or Aquinas, with John Wesley. It's a new doctrine. It's a new doctrine that suits and fits the time in which we live. It's not, we can understand why people do it, but we, then again, we need to be careful not to condone it, or certainly not to teach it or to preach it. So what do we do if we're in the situation of John the Baptist? Yes, what do we do? What, what, is our, what is a practical response? What if we find ourselves doubting? What if we find ourselves uh, being disappointed, okay, with, uh, you know, with, uh, with Jesus? Now, Jesus said one thing in this passage. He said, blessed are those who are not offended. Yes, blessed are, the, blessed are those who are not, not offended. Um, and I looked it up in a few different versions of the Bible. God will bless everyone who doesn't reject me because of what I do. Yes. Because we don't reject Jesus because of his agenda. We're not offended. How happy are those who have no doubts about me? How blessed is anyone who's not offended by me? And the Amplified, of course, and, and blessed, happy, fortunate, and to be envied is he who takes no offense at me and finds no cause for stumbling or through me is not hindered from seeing, from seeing the truth. And my dear friends, we can be so easily offended. Again, for personal reasons, cultural reasons, our political view of the world. I mean, we're... Um, uh, offended because God doesn't act in the way that we expect him. And when one has their expectations dashed, well, this leads to, uh, to difficulties. Um, it's often preached, Jesus will solve every one of your problems. Come to Jesus and all will be wonderful. Of course, that's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what we sometimes hear uh, in our churches or youth groups. Um, we're offended that um, God judges people or God will hold us accountable. Actually, Jesus will be that judge uh, at the end of days. We're offended that, God, that uh, God's enemies are not our enemies. We're offended that we're told that we need to forgive and not carry on a grudge because if we forgive, who's going to get justice for us? Who's going to write uh, a wrong uh, situation. We're really offended in this day and age that God tells us what we should do with our bodies, especially with our sexuality. You know, and people say, well, that's not what my Jesus, you know, that's not my Jesus, that's not my God. 
Yeah, that's exactly the point. You know, my Jesus or my God may not be the God of history, and it may not be the God of scripture, and it may not be the God who's really uh, at work in the world today. It's something that I've constructed. And so what do we do about this? What do we do to make sure that we uh, stay in a place yeah, where we're humble enough to receive you know, correction? Yes, I mean, first and foremost, we examine ourselves. And that's what Paul wrote in, in 2 Corinthians. He wrote to, to the church, to the church at Corinth. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Yes, examine yourself. If we have doubts, if we have disappointments, especially with God, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin. We can acknowledge that and be honest about them. And people who have such doubts should not be run out of the community. Or we should not beat people over the head for having such disappointments. But at the same time, if we do have such disappointments, we should ask ourselves, where does it come from? Does it come from a hurt? Yes. Does it come uh, maybe from a, um, an attack? Sometimes we're attacked by, uh, attacked by the, the devil. Does it come from some uh, a disappointment? God hasn't lived up to our expectations as we thought he should. We should first of all ask ourselves, and as counterintuitive as it sounds, secondly, we should pray. If you, God loves to hear the prayers of desperate, doubting people, even if sometimes we don't necessarily fully believe. We should make prayer, uh, in such case, a priority. We should also make Bible study a priority and ask God to reveal himself, okay? Reveal himself to us through the text. Yes, that, uh, the text is, of course, very, uh, very powerful, and uh, it is God's way of of uh, touching the lives of, of folks. And also, and just to uh, finally, just uh, we should not leave the community. Yes? We should not leave the church or leave the, the fellowship because we're struggling with doubts. If more so, if more so, we should, uh, we should remain, det- remain attached and remain, uh, remain connected. I also think that even in such times of doubt, that uh, coming to communion, to the sacrament of communion, would also be something that's very important. And finally, I think the words of James the Apostle, who um, we read for our second reading, uh, would be very appropriate for those waiting for the coming of the Lord, uh, for those somehow suffering, Uh, for those finding it uh, difficult. And those words from chapter 5, we didn't read all of them, and I'm going to read them. It says as follows, um, chapter 4, I think it was. Nope, I'm reading the wrong. Yeah, chapter 5. It says, "Be be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And it says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is. Okay, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Um, 
brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, or let's say in the face of doubt, or in the face of disappointment, okay? Um, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Despite our doubts and despite our disappointments and uh, many things that we don't understand about Jesus himself, the Lord is gracious, compassionate, full of mercy. The kingdom of heaven is at work, hopefully in the lives, should it be at work in the lives of all of us. And God is in that process of redeeming and touching our lives and transforming us. But he calls upon us to be patient and he calls upon us to persevere. Yes, even in the face of our doubts, even in the face of our, pers- of our disappointments. Where do we get that perseverance from? It's a gift. It's a gift that he'll give us. He'll give us wisdom if we ask. He'll give us perseverance. Let's pray. Father, we pray. Ask that uh, all of us will come to an increasingly better, maybe sharper understanding of who your son Jesus is, of how blessed it is to be a disciple of how challenging it is to be a disciple of his. We pray that we will not be like John, that we will not die in our disappointment, and that we will not die in our doubt. But we pray that you'll increase our faith and assurance uh, so that we may stand firm and persevere to the end. Each one of us, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.